There was this one woman on my team who was fantastic. When we get in larger group dynamics, she would just be very quiet and she would shut down. Um, and I actually said, like, what are you, what are you afraid of? Something's holding you back. And it was, she was like, I'm just afraid of sounding stupid. That's it. Well, okay. So going down the, what's the worst thing that can happen if you say something stupid versus what's the worst thing that happens if you don't learn to speak up? Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Today on the show, we have Katherine Ulrich, who's the managing director of First Mark Capital, one of the most successful early stage VCs in New York invested in high-growth enterprise and consumer startups like Airbnb, Shopify, Pinterest, and Envision. She has a deep passion for and expertise in health and wellness, AI, and behavior change. Prior to joining Firstmark, she was the chief product officer at Shutterstock. She was also the first chief product officer at Weight Watchers, responsible for their global digital and retail experiences. She holds a degree in engineering and a certificate in public health policy from Harvard College, and her first investment as a VC was in Parsley Health. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. One of the things that I found really cool about your bio was that you were a coxswain at Harvard. Um, And especially as an athlete, um, that was something that I was really interested in about your experience and how that shaped um, your experience in college and who you were after. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I guess the story is, uh, I actually, I grew up sailing. I love being on the water. I originally started out as a rower. And at some point they said to me, you are never going to grow tall enough to be a good rower. Um, so consider coxing. And so when I went into college, uh, became a coxswain for the men's crew team. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, that was actually a defining experience uh, on a number of levels. I think anyone that's been in the sport of rowing um, knows that it's a it's a very competitive and difficult sport. Um, you know, your body goes into almost uh, immediate production of lactic acid, and so it's very difficult for the athletes. Um, and for me as a coxswain, uh, just for those who don't know, you're essentially steering the boat while the rest of the rowers are going backwards so they can't see where they're going. You're communicating where they are and what's happening, and you're calling the strategy for the moves when you're racing. And then when you're not racing, you're coaching the rowers individually. Um, and I think it honestly, being a coxswain was one of the best lessons that I've had in my life. It may sound silly because I've been lucky to have a great education, but it was such a lesson because it taught me a lot about leadership um, before I actually got into the working world. Um, I think some great examples where there's eight guys in a boat. um, And obviously each of those eight guys is a very different individual with their own motivations for what they want to accomplish, um, their own style and approach to rowing. And at the end of the day, you need the boat to really work together and row as one. Um, So you're both coaching each individual and then you're coaching the group together. And obviously that was a great um, analogy that I poured into the working world. Um, I also think for what me it did is it uh, challenged me a lot because when I was earlier in my time of Bia Cox, and probably when I was a freshman or, or sophomore, I had a lot more doubts about my capabilities. Um, it was honestly very emotionally difficult to be a woman on a men's team when there are basically no other women on the team. Um, and, you know, probably like a constant inner monologue of like, why am I doing this? Am I going to be good at this? Is it worth it? Um, 
having to learn what it was like to be on a men's team and work with a, in a male, you know, dominated kind of team and learning what motivated them. So that was really challenging. And I think I had, I might have told these before, I had one, I had one turning point that was really interesting because I had a guy on the team, when you're a coxswain, you face someone who's the stroke of the boat, who basically all the rowers are following. And he leans over at one point during practice and he covered up my mic that was on my mouth. Mm. So no one else could hear the conversation. And he was just like, you know, in this boat, he was like, I mean, he actually said, he's like, you're wearing the man pants. He's like, we're all in span, span, or spandex. I mean, going backwards, all we care is that you're making the calls and you're making them confidently. He's like, I don't even care if they're the right ones. You just have to make it confidently and make us believe. And that, I even get goosebumps now talking about that because I took so much away. That was a turning point for me to realize that it was true. Like everyone in the boat was just hearing my voice and either I could exude confidence with my, my voice, with how we were positioning against other boats or a belief that we were going to succeed and win the race, or you can hear it in someone's voice when there's doubt or any trepidation. And so I realized that I was not going to be helping the team if I had any doubt or trepidation coming through my voice. And that was a changing point for me that, um, I, it's, it's a lesson that I've carried with me, I think for a long time in becoming then a leader of organizations as well. Prior to that college experience, I want to know a little bit more about who you were beforehand, because it seems like this was such an important turning point because it was a, a type of insight that you maybe didn't have earlier on. So um, did you have brothers growing up? Did you have sisters? You know, what was that like? So I actually, I was actually an only child. Mm. So as an only child, I think in some ways... Um, I was an only child, and I was very lucky that um, both parents, but my dad in particular, raised me as if I was a boy. There was nothing that my parents treated me in a certain way because as a girl. So what I mean by that, it was I got to explore, explore a ton of sports growing up. My dad, you know, believed that I needed to know how to change the tire on the car and the oil before I could even have a car or learn to use a chainsaw. And learn. I mean, there was just no skill that he would have taught a son that he didn't teach me growing up. Um, but I think the other component is, you know, being an only child, I grew up with a lot of um, pressure, probably from what I thought were expectations of my parents. Um, you know, when you're an only child, both parents are invested in their one child, so you you get a lot of attention. In my case, I also felt that pressure because my parents, and I'm very lucky for this, but spent a lot of money and invested in my education. Um, it was not an insignificant amount. Um, they put me in fantastic schools, and so I I, don't know, I probably felt the, but the pressure, a good pressure to succeed and make the most of that opportunity that had been given to me. Um, and that was probably what wired me growing up to be able to pursue these different avenues. You know, they let me try sports and that's how I got into crew and ultimately did that in college. But that's a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that sort of pressure, it's like, as you hinted at, can either be really good or can be extremely detrimental if taken the wrong way. Yeah. Were you a perfectionist and are you a perfectionist? I was definitely, I was definitely a perfectionist. I would definitely describe myself as type A, yes, wanted everything to be perfect when I was in school um, uh, and always was trying to take on and do more. Um, it's interesting when you say that because even engineering as a degree is somewhat like, I think, a perfectionist degree um, when you're working through that schoolwork. And I actually remember a point when I even had like a crisis of confidence on whether I wanted to continue my engineering degree. And it came at the end of my junior year, so I'm a bulk of the way through it. Um, 
but you know the rationale I'd actually been combining this public health policy and this engineering degree and basically the two didn't fit together that well like with the way the credits work so it was a lot of work and I remember calling up my dad after being up all night on this problem set and basically saying like I don't know why I'm doing this um, why am I doing this and he was he by the way was an engineer by trade um, and he was quiet for a minute and he just said he's like there's a lot of value in learning how hard you can work and at that moment in time that was actually what carried me through was this idea of um, a little less from being a perfectionist, getting it perfect to like learning how hard you can work, learning to push your boundaries that you're constantly improving and getting better. Um, you know, as I say that now, it's kind of interesting, though, because I think that storyline to me of like, well, just work hard. That was my storyline of um, good things will come if you work hard. That was my belief system coming out of that. Um, as I've gotten a little bit older, actually, that shifted because I realized that I don't really want that storyline. That storyline at a certain part in your career can actually hold you back um, because I made a shift to think it's not just about working hard. It's about working smart and making sure that you're working on the things that you care about. Um, and we can, But that was a big mm-hmm. kind of shift from my earlier mentality of what was helping me succeed to then maybe you know later in my life. Do you believe in models like the 80-20 rule? Um, you know, I... So, not really. Yeah. I guess I guess uh, it's funny like the 80/20. I often like react and think it's just too easy to say yeah, and I'm exactly. not really sure how it applies to every situation. <laughs> Which is why I even asked Exactly. So that's why I'm like, uh, like there's a number of things where no, you should just do it fully. Like do yeah. it fully or don't do it at all. Yeah. Uh and then there's things that um you should consider like the valuable piece of work that you should do, like in products, right? The idea of a uh MVP, right? Uh, minimal viable product when you're shipping something to the public. Okay, no one has trouble with figuring out what's minimal or the word product. Everyone has problems defining like viable, which often gets also determined as, as valuable in the product mm-hmm. world. That's the hard part, right? So like the 80-20, it's like you can't partially finish an MVP. You have to know what the yeah. MVP is to be able to have that be resonate with consumers no matter what it is. Um, yeah. But yeah. And there's a lot of these sorts of like shortcut models, I think, especially in the startup world where it's like, you know, whether it's like move fast and break things or like the 80-20 rule or, um, you know, whatever it is that we have um, that I feel like are sometimes excuses for being lazy. Right. Um, So how do you, like in your day-to-days, in your work um, now, figure out what is your priority that you should be that's like the work smart area. The work smart area. It's actually in now in this new job, that's probably the hardest part of the job too. So I'll come back to that because now that I've moved into the VC world, it is an infinite job, meaning you could fill every second of every day doing an activity that you could create a justification for it being valuable. So actually figuring out what's going to be that most valuable at that given time is a really critical um, component to it. Um, it. You know, one of the this little roundabout answer, but one of the ways that I think of it is I kind of shifted to, and this is in large part thanks to my husband, actually, we started having this conversation and he asked me this question of, he said, instead of thinking about what you want to do, and this was when I was considering a career shift, he said, why don't you think about who you want to be? And at first I was like, what do you mean who I want to be? Like, I don't, I I actually said, I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know how to figure out who I want to be. And he's like, well, picture yourself, like what type of person, what are you doing? How are you acting? How are you impacting people? Um, And that has resonated with me because when you start to figure out 
who you want to be, it lets you prioritize all the activities in your life um, and and really ask yourself if they stack up to the who you want to become. Um, and so, like, that has shifted my thinking of a lot of things mm-hmm. um, and, and prioritizing work. Yeah. How did you answer that question? The who, the who I want to yeah. be? Um, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I, I mean, a couple of things like the who I want to be is someone who values growth and learning as a key component of myself. Um, uh, and honestly, probably values growth and learning earlier in my career. I definitely, um, was more concerned with having money. That was like, I, uh, grew up kind of having a fear of not having enough money, even though I had this great education. Um, my parents did not have a ton of money. And so I had that fear instilled with me and I reached a point where I realized that, and I'm sure a lot of people talk this way and say, you know, a lot of people that make a lot of money realize that that just won't make you happy. And, um, so really thinking about, uh, being someone who values growth and learning because I derive happiness from that. Like that was what I wanted to do. Um, the other component for me on who I wanted to be was someone who, um, was a very trusted friend and wife and mother. So it was, how do I make sure the relationships I have in my life, I'm really making them the best relationships they can possibly be. Um, and, and I think growth in that comes together because I think you end up making great relationships with people when you personally are focused on growth because you can give a lot to that relationship because um, you're growing yourself and you're learning new things. And I'm a better mother because I can, I'm constantly trying to learn and grow how to be a better mother. I'm a better wife because I'm thinking not just I'm settled in my relationship, but how do I grow and become a better wife and a better partner to my husband at all points in time? And likewise in my job, just how do I get better and better? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that also a potential trap, you know, like when, again, it's like, when is it good enough? Like it's better and better. And then like, at what point do you celebrate? Like it's good. It's uh, it's a great question. Um, I probably have shifted more about trying to celebrate all the small wins in my life versus setting some really far out goal. Um, Both because I think... I've shifted. I probably was a little bit more outward, like goal oriented when I was younger. And I I think the funny thing about goals, I think it's good to have a goal because you're striving to grow and improve. But a lot of people, when they reach their goal, are then disappointed because they haven't decided what comes next after that. And so I've been a lot more focused on how do you just how do you enjoy these day to day moments um, and celebrate them. So I guess that's how I counterbalance the I do want to like keep learning and developing myself um, but trying to like celebrate the small moments that happen every day Um, and being you know the other thing is like I probably was I still am like very hard on myself I was very hard on myself when I was younger any small mistake would weigh on me greatly Um, and it's something I still like you still struggle with that it's like any mistake I make I still bear that as like a very heady burden and but when you realize like that and this is actually from even studying behavior change for a long point period of time feeling that like guilt or anxiety from making a mistake does nothing for you to grow actually it's even been proven Mm -hmm. psychologically that like while we think that might like give you some scar that's like I'm never going to make this mistake again the brain does not work that way actually in fact like painful moments the brain is wired to bury them down and forget them so making yourself try to learn from pain is not the best way. The best way to learn is actually to give yourself like uh, basically dopamine, but feeling good about the things that you're doing. So I even believe it as like trying to just praise yourself, even for the small things, even for 
whatever it is, even like waking up and just going to one workout on a rainy day when you felt like staying in bed, like, yes, definitely praise yourself, um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, being, uh, calm before I try to, uh, you know, talk to my son if he's having a temper tantrum, like that is a great moment of praise as a parent, um, to, you know, just, you know, even moving into the VC world, um, realizing that I'm going up a tremendous learning curve, um, and, uh, you know, giving myself praise and credit as I continue to learn and grow on that front. Yeah. How does that play into learning from and facing your fears? Something that we've talked a lot about. Yeah. Um, it's interesting learning from and facing the fears. I think, um, so when you say that, by the way, one of the quotes that comes to my mind always, um, and it's a new one that I heard is that courage comes before confidence. And when I heard that, it really resonated with me because I go back through my life and I just think that that is so true. Like you hit these moments where you can just decide that you're going to have a little courage and go for it. And no matter whether it is, whatever you think, it's never as bad as you thought it was going to be if you thought there's going to be a negative outcome. And you usually, when you have a moment of courage, just feel fantastic afterwards and you learn and grow from it. Um, so I feel like being able to um, dive head first into things that scare you are usually the things that you're going to grow the most from. And so I, that quote is something like I hold on to if I'm ever feeling some trepidation. It's just courage comes before confidence. Um, and I, I just really believe that. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah. And I think when you said that, it was like this this thought of the reason why there's fear around certain things is because we don't actually know what we want. So it's this kind of gray cloud of something that you're afraid will happen, but you haven't actually thought about what that worst possible scenario is. Yeah. And by not thinking about that, you're also not thinking about, like, what is the outcome that I want? To happen in this situation and if you let that fear hold you back then you're definitely not going to get the thing that you wanted yep. in the first place totally agree with that and you know that reminds me like I um the other thing I find is like usually when there's something fear-based I like try to flip the negative like figure out if I'm afraid of something try to figure out all the bad things that will happen if you don't do it. It's kind of like the, so if you're afraid of doing it, figure out everything that's going to go wrong if you don't do it. Um, so, I, you know, an example in the business world would be you, when you have to have, let's say, tough conversations with someone on your team, you know, from tough performance reviews to even unfortunately having to like fire people and let them go. There's one part where you're fearful to have that conversation, but if you think about it, like the worst thing is not having the honest conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're holding back on not telling someone the areas they need to develop on, you're actually holding back from helping them to get better and grow. So once you put in that light, it's like, well, that's against who I want to be. This is the who, who I want to be and what I value. So I can't hold back because that will, it doesn't hold true with my value. So it makes it, you know, lets you flip it a little bit. Yeah. Um, And what are your thoughts then? Obviously, we're in this sort of culture where it's like transparency is key, you know, candor is key, honesty. But it is, in reality, harder when, especially when we're put in that situation. And I think sometimes, like, radical candor and transparency is conflated with brutal honesty, which is not actually creating a culture of transparency, but rather a culture of brutality. Yes. Um, yeah. How do you balance giving that sort of harsh feedback um, when sometimes it can also feel like it'll put you in a vulnerable position? 
Yeah, I think so. To that, I think there's two pieces. One, and Kim Scott writes about this when she wrote yep. about Radical Candor. One thing is that it, to you have to care personally about someone, right? So you have to care personally. Probably most important, though, the second component is, like, what is the outcome you want to happen from whatever the conversation or whatever is going to unfold or take place? I think a lot of people don't think about the outcome that they want. So yeah. it's not just about being honest for the sake of about being honest. It should be about... Achieving an outcome for that person, knowing what outcome they want or what opportunity you think should exist for them because you care personally about them. Um, and it should have like it should be a goal in mind of helping them grow to that point. I think when you, if you frame it that way, then any honest conversation comes off as genuine and helpful versus that kind of like brutal, like just direct and brutal and not helpful it can be negative in that context. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so I just think, yeah, keeping that outcome in mind is a critical piece. I mean, it applies in the VC world because so much so much now of my life is meeting startups that are different phases. Um, and, you know, I'm very new to this, so I there's a lot of people that have been doing this for many more years than I have. But um, a tough part about being a VC is having the conversations about passing out a company, company um, and giving them reasons why. Um, and it's interesting because the psychology of being a VC, in some cases, you maybe don't want to be as honest because you don't want to lose the option value if that company becomes some amazing <laughs> thing two years down the road and you gave them all these reasons why you didn't think that they were going to succeed. But I would actually say the opposite. Like if you if you know that company is trying to grow and succeed, giving them the concerns that you have based on your experience will either let them address them or prove prove you wrong. And there's kind of, you know, for the couple of companies where I've, I've given them kind of my thoughts on it and then they come back three months later and they say, well, that one concern you've had, we've actually crushed those numbers or we've improved that dynamic of our business, then that's like a great way to reopen up the conversation. Um, it also comes from like a VC, like not being scared of saying I was wrong actually on that one metric. Yeah. Like yeah. I thought that, but I was wrong. So great. Yeah. Let's, um, so that's, you know, yeah. think about that and this new role. Have you ever had the experience of giving an entrepreneur or someone in your life feedback and them saying, yeah, I get it. But then just continuing to make the same mistake over and over? Yes. Yes. And how um, do you deal with that? Um, so I guess when you say that, I'm thinking a little bit more of being on the operating side when I was running teams mm-hmm. and thinking of, um, you know, some people on my team who I, I felt like I was trying to do the radical candor thing. I tried to get to know them. I was trying to give them feedback for how to improve. I usually found that the reason they kept repeating the mistake Honestly, it's because I hadn't gone deep enough with them. Um, so, and this is something I think you and I have talked a little bit about. I just think that a lot of people don't go deep enough in their conversations with people to understand what really motivates them or what really scares them. So, um, and so I'm trying to think of an example. You know, an example um, that comes to mind was that there was this one woman on my team who was fantastic in our one-to-one conversations or in small groups. She was great at expressing her opinion and speaking up and was very articulate. But when we get in larger group dynamics, she would just be very quiet and she would mm-hmm. shut down. Um, and I kept trying to give her the feedback, like bring that, like speak up, just direct feedback, speak up. You know, it's important for you as you want to become more senior in an organization. So I knew like where her outcome, where she wanted to go and what was holding her back. Um, 
And really, actually, it took a couple times and she still was not getting better. I even would record some of the meetings and just be like, see, like this was a perfect opportunity for you to express your opinion and you didn't. And we would review it. So I was trying to use all these techniques to draw it out of her. Um, and it, it, we had this very direct conversation. And I actually said, like, what are you, what are you afraid of? Something's holding you back. And it was she was like, I'm just afraid of sounding stupid. That's it. In these larger conversations with more senior people. Um, and once we addressed that, straight on about like, well, kind of a, well, okay, so what if you do say something stupid? What's the worst thing that can happen? Okay. What's going down the, what's the worst thing that can happen if you say something stupid versus what's the worst thing that happens if you don't learn to speak up? And pretty soon she kind of learned that, well, the the bad thing if I don't speak up is that I'm not going to develop my career. I'm not going to grow. And like my ambitions, I'm never going to get there versus the feeling stupid in one meeting. That's going to pass in a day. Like I can get over that. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of like going to that level of depth. That was actually, I didn't even thought of this story, but that was like a tipping point for her. And it came down to trying to understand what she was afraid of um, Mm -hmm. and then comparing the two different paths that she could choose between. Yeah. Um, it seems like then what's what I derive from that story that's probably applicable to a lot of people is this feeling of high stakes when there doesn't actually need to be and, yeah. or there aren't actually those high stakes. Yeah. Um, how have you thought through that in your own life, um, especially in those moments perhaps where you were like, you know, even earlier on in your career where you thought like this is the end of the world if I don't do it? That's interesting. Um I mean, I'll have to think about that a little. Uh, I think uh, sometimes it's like it's you put a goal and you make it so high that it feels impossible to accomplish. I guess that's what's running through my mind in, in response to it mm-hmm. versus breaking it down into the different steps to get there. And this is where I kind of I mean about like when you when you build something up too big in your mind, it just becomes something that's more scary versus the steps to get there. So all right, just to equate it back to like to rowing, for an example, right? Um, if you build up this, OK, this is, for example, we won nationals. So now we're going to the national championship. It's the biggest race we're going to have. And so like there's a huge amount of pressure to perform in that race. But the way that you break it down as an athlete is that you have these you know, warm-up procedures that you're used to. So it just feels very normal to you building up to that big event. In some ways, you're already practiced and ready to compete in that big event, even if it is the biggest event that you're competing in all year, right? Um, And I kind of think of it the same way in the business world. People can build up these big events, you know, big presentation, the most senior presentation that you've been asked to do so far, or big negotiation. Um, And it's really all the small steps that lean up to the big thing that matter versus the big thing itself. So if you can just focus on each small step to get there, you will get there. If you focus too much on the the whole thing at mass, it's kind of hard to tackle. Um, And I feel, I've always believed, like, just cut it into small steps and take it one step at a time and you'll get there. Um, And actually, as I say that, it's interesting because when I was leading the product team at Weight Watchers, that's actually a critical component of weight loss. That's the way we talked Mm -hmm. about it. You talk about helping people lose 100 plus pounds. That is a daunting goal. And what you know, which is true for life, is that on that journey to lose that much weight, you're going to have ups and downs. Like you're not, it's not going to be this linear trajectory of losing a certain one to two pounds per week. You're going to hit a period of plateau that you have to push through. And it's the same thing in the business world with like developing your skills. You're going to have periods where you feel like your career is advancing really rapidly. And then you're going to kind of hit a plateau where you feel like, hey, it's not happening as as fast as I thought it was. Um, 
And it's kind of like a just keep going and just, again, if you focus on yeah. continuing to learn, it'll, it'll work out. Um, Sometimes I feel like in my own life when things are going really well, like I'm like on the up and up, I'm like, there's a side of me that's like, <laughs> okay, when is this going to, when am I going to dip? And it's <laughs> like the, there is this sort of like fear of like, I know it's going to come. Have you had that feeling? I definitely have had that. And there's actually been uh, psychologists have written about this, that people can actually self-sabotage themselves because of that feeling where um, they're so afraid of it not continuing. They will actually self-sabotage, like subconsciously. They don't realize they're doing it. But they'll sabotage themselves to prevent them from getting to that next, um, you know, from continuing to be on that trajectory and almost because they feel like they don't deserve it. Um, yeah. Uh, and I mean, this is where I think there's like a mentality of just try to enjoy every step along the way and be appreciative to it and grateful for it. Um, I think that also helps. Yeah. That was someone once told me that you can't be afraid if you're feeling grateful. Like if you are in a state of gratitude, it's impossible to be feel fearful. Mm. And that's been fascinating, and I've actually tried it out. Like, a couple times when you are feeling a little scared about entering a situation, taking a moment and just... You can just think about anything you're grateful for. It can be... Just think of, like, a great day in your life or a great moment in your life, someone you met or something that happened to you or your kids, whatever it is. And, like, when I get in that state, it is fascinating. If I actually, like, relive a memory, I'm no longer afraid. I can't hold the two things together. And I always find that fascinating because if you can just stay in that state, then... Mm-hmm. Ideally, you wouldn't have as much fear in your life, which is, you know, potentially holding you back from things. Yeah. Yeah. And as a VC, when you are speaking to entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who are pitching you, who do have to pitch this lofty vision of the future, um, does what you just said about translating it into like very feasible steps apply in terms of how you evaluate the thought process of an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I like, you know, I think it's interesting because you want both things. Mm -hmm. You want someone who has a big vision. And the other interesting thing I'll just say is like VC and VC is a certain type of money to raise. Like if you're if you know, you're taking VC money, um, you're we're we're a model that's expecting like amazing, outstanding returns. So you need to have a big vision, by the way. You can raise money through other channels and grow like a fantastic, profitable business for yourself and not have raised VC. And I think sometimes I think there's an aura about VC that people get wrong and don't really understand that dynamic. And quite frankly means that some people have raised VC money when they really shouldn't have. Um, mm-hmm. because it's it's putting yourself on this kind of jet fuel trajectory and expectation ramp. So um, I think uh, that's an important thing that people get wrong with VC. But yeah. um, So like when going back to your question, though, when someone pitches me, I want to see the big vision. But look, it it takes a lot of steps of execution to get there. So I'm looking for someone who's going to be thoughtful about continuing to execute right all along the way. Um, And that's both, you know, their understanding of the business, of all the components of how they're going to grow revenue, how they're going to manage costs. I'm also I'm also trying to figure out if I think they're a good leader. Um, you know, one of my kind of tests is I, I personally like to look at um, founders and say, hmm, do I think this person could be the CEO of a company that's $100 million in revenue? I'm not saying that they can do it by themselves without building a great team around them, but I fundamentally believe if at an early stage I see that this person has inklings of being able to grow, that's just another great factor to the company um, if that founder can bring it to that point. What are the physical manifestations of a great leader as you're trying to evaluate 
physical. I mean, uh, not so, like gender race, but like you know, <laughs> no, the but traits. like. Um, I mean, I'm looking for. I think a couple things. I think someone who can exude an energy that I could see could get an organization excited about something. You know, I think when you're, for example, when you're a very small startup, when you only have a couple of people, it's much easier to have everyone be on the same page about why they're doing this and where they're going. Um, you know, if you're looking at someone who can scale an organization, you have to be able to communicate the why of why everyone is working on this very clearly. Um, and usually multiple times through different mediums to make sure that an organization stays on the same page. So I'm usually looking for someone who's a great communicator um, and who can communicate it confidently. Um, but the other component is I look for is someone who is you know confident but also humble because I think this is an understanding that you're going to have bumps in the road. Things are not going to go as you have planned. It's an inevitability, and I want someone who can ride through those kind of knocks that are going to come your way when you're running a company. Um, mm. And so that's kind of some of the things that I look for when I meet with someone. Um, the other thing I look for, especially with founding teams, is the dynamic amongst the teams. Um, I think that's something, I mean, you can, there's a lot of just number crunching. So I always think of it as like the math and the music with any business. It's like you can crunch the numbers, get the metrics, like believe in that piece. And then there's the music, which usually is kind of like, all right, how are they at expressing the vision and how well does that team work together? And I find myself like one of the questions I, I sometimes ask if it's um, more than one founder, if it's a couple of founders is like, you know, simple. How did you guys meet? And then also like, you know, how do you two, do you two complement one another in what ways like describe your skills um and also like to ask you know how do you challenge one another and just those very basic questions you can tell if there's an authentic connection between co-founders or not um and it's great to kind of flush that out and see if they have kind of a healthy relationship if i think that they're going to work together well or if tensions are going to rise um because tensions between co-founders in early stage i just think can create a lot of challenges for companies yeah one of the number one reasons why startups fail like yeah. Outside of running out of money, which I think they're kind of like head and head. They're head and head. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of those relationships and those um, the co-founder partnerships, do you think there's merit to um, the amount of time that they've known each other? Not necessarily, because I'm a big believer in just like chemistry between people, and this like again, if you go deep with someone quickly, you can you can get very close to that person very quickly, right? So, the amount of time doesn't really matter. It's more the depth of the relationship that they've um, that they've gotten to, and that usually comes from like one of the things I loved when I was in the operating side was this guy Patrick Lencioni wrote this book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Mm-hmm. So I, I I love that book. It was it's a very simple book. It's I think like a hundred page fable. It tells a story to learn these lessons. And when I was leading teams, I actually would read that book once a year, which might sound silly because it's a basic book. But every time I read that book, I would take away something different from how I was behaving or how my team was behaving. Um, But to answer the co-founder question, the foundation of a team, the first level is trust. It's like, how well do you trust someone? And that trust means that you have to be really open with that person about what you're good at and what you're bad at um, and be willing to admit your faults um, and talk about it openly. Most people in many of the relationships don't actually do that. Um, You know, I think it applies in business. It implies in in actually like personal relationships. Um, And so getting to that level of trust, like, Founders, you can kind of tell who's gotten to that level of trust where where they the banter between them usually reveals it. It's something like the banter between couples usually reveals it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's like uh, you know, yes, 
whatever it is. Yeah, Catherine often is too long-winded. She talks, she talks too long, and I'll just have a hand signal to like kind of tell her to <laughs> quiet down, and and they'll giggle or they'll laugh because they're like they're okay with it. I'm okay with it. I know that I tend to talk too yeah. long, so it's okay if someone hand signals to me yeah. to you know turn it off. Um, we have a good dynamic. Like that's just a small example, and you can see that relationship with the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise with marriages, too. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, then how do you balance, I think, going into the topic of friendships and relationships, um, that I know that for a lot of people, there's this tension between, like, loyalty towards a childhood relationship or, like, you know, people you've known for a long time in your life versus maybe people that you meet more recently where you have that chemistry. I think especially in a place like New York, right, where you're yeah. constantly meeting so many people in the VC world with entrepreneurs, constantly meeting growth-oriented individuals. Um, but obviously, we all have only a limited amount of time, only a certain number of relationships we can really dive deep into. Um, how have your relationships and friendships evolved over time um, as you've been growing as an individual? Yeah, I think, um, you know... I. I think it actually was Tony Robbins who said this, which is that he was like, you can, two things come to mind. One is like, you can choose your peers, you can't choose your family. And I use the word family because I think family can be a little bit broader than your direct family. Like I have, my best friend is a woman that I've known since first grade. So for all intents and purposes, like she is a sister to me. She is family, right? And so those family relationships to me are are really important. Um, I think that they just are are a very deep part of your life. And I honestly believe if you, um, this is hard because a lot of people maybe don't have fully healthy relationships with all family members in their life. But I think if you can try to heal those relationships, it provides a lot of healing to you yourself as an individual. So I believe in like healing your family relationships and then trying to get a peer group that does is closer to the growth, um, growth and challenging, uh, you to grow. Um, and I say that because I just think, in a growth mindset, you're just continuing to learn, right? So I have found, you know, friends who maybe aren't continuing to learn. It tend like the conversations are maybe not as interesting over time. Honestly, they tend to be a little more superficial. Um, it's very easy to complain about things in your life. I find it a lot more interesting to talk about ways to solve things or yeah. learn new things. And so that, yeah, you start to learn about who you want to surround yourself. Um, that brings you know really high quality to your life and conversations. Have you had toxic relationships or friendships in your life? I don't think I've had toxic. I haven't had toxic ones. Mm. I think I've I've just had ones where it's natural. Like you go through a cycle where you're just maybe not as close to someone as you used to be. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing, right? Like I think that those happens for reasons. Like that person was probably really important for me through a certain phase of my life. And now they're on to a new phase of their life and I'm on to a new phase of my life. And that's kind of a, it's a healthy thing. It's not something to feel guilty about um, mm-hmm. is how I think about it. What are some of the other really important lessons you've learned, I think, as you were doing that research in psychology and personal development? Because I know you've spent a decent amount of time in that. Yeah. um, I mean, big lesson is that just people do not behave rationally. I mean, that is like (laughs) that is like the entire background behind behavioral economics versus pure economics. And I think um, 
realizing that that comes into play in every single moment in life. Um, so, you know, we talk about the honest answers. I believe that like everyone is living in their own hallucination of mm-hmm. the world. Even you and I yeah. in this conversation, like you're going to leave with a different view of what this conversation was all about than maybe that I even left with. Um, it's like this, this basic exercise. I, I also used to do it with my team, which is like, you just ask your group of people, okay, everyone picture a ball. And you go around, everyone has a ball in their head. And then you say, okay, what ball did you picture? And someone's like, a baseball, a basketball, a beach ball. And some smart person eventually says, a dance, because it's, you know. <laughs> So, but, like, that's the conversation. Yeah. And then you realize, like, okay, you said a ball, one word. Everyone had their own interpretation of it. That is such a good analogy to every part of life. Any conversation you have, any, by the way, product that you're trying to build where you think everyone is on the same page of what they should be building, there's no way, unless you've spent a lot of time defining the ball and exactly what it can do behave and what it looks like are you all on the same page um so i don't like i I find that's an important part to be humble about the fact that everyone is leaving with their own interpretations and not to be judgmental if you have a different view to realize that like they're probably just seeing it from a different perspective it's not right or wrong it's just literally that everyone's experiencing the world from different angles yeah Um, subjective realities yeah what i yeah think about yeah exactly um and then behavioral economic like i love there's all these quirky things in it that um you start to like learn and and take away and and create interesting product hacks like i loved as a product person because you can just go through all these different um theories of how people behave and just literally apply them to your product and say am i leveraging this to the best of my ability so funny like for example uh we remember things that are like funny and more outrageous better than things that are normal so super bowl commercials for example when the guys pistachio commercial remember when like the shell cracked over and his head appeared like there's weird super bowl commercials the reason they do weird super bowl commercials is that actually it increases recall um or you know the price anchoring right so the option on your pricing page you always want to put the one you want people to choose in the middle and have a higher price point so there's all these techniques that once you learn it create great ways to just brainstorm ideas about how you can make your business better how do you think about energy and the exchange that we have? Because I think I, we might have talked about in the past, like, zodiac signs and just, you know, how everything that we do is some sort of energy exchange. Um, and how you are inevitably affects the person that you are with in the room. And um, so what sort of energy do you bring to the table? And, like, do you consciously think about that? Yeah, so I I definitely consciously think about it. I think the answer to that has evolved for me over time. I think, um, you know, earlier when I was an early manager and then growing up to be a more senior manager in an organization, you start to be acutely aware about how much your energy changes the entire room. So, you know, you walking into a room on your phone, really not paying attention and just sitting down. And you can test this, by the way. Anyone listening, go test it. Go try it out. Don't just believe me. I'm a big believer in A-B testing. Try that out and see how people behave. And then in the other meeting, like, walk in, standing up straight, saying hello, greeting everyone, playing a little music before you start your team meeting, and all of a sudden everyone's in a better mood. And I, I fundamentally believe that, like, you exude that energy and people can feel it. Like, I think when you're around people like that, you feel it. And I don't think, I think it's something that you can work to build up. Um... 
And I also believe, and there's been studies that prove this, like if you are in a positive state, a calm, positive state, you are more creative and you're better at problem solving. If you are in a negative state, you just do not solve things as creatively. Um, and that's the reality of it. So once you realize that, like even when you feel like you're not in a good mood, it's okay. I, but I think like what I try for myself is how do I shorten the time period when I'm not in a good mood. Like if I'm in a moment of feeling self-pity over whatever it is, it's okay. Like it's all right, but just try to get out of it. So I try to get out of it in five minutes or less. That's my, like, just try to get out of it in five minutes or less um, and have techniques to help yourself get out of it in five minutes or less. Um, and the more you do that, the better relationships you have. Um, uh, but I, I do believe in that. Like your energy changes every relationship and conversation you have. Do you have techniques? Like, do you set a timer for five minutes? And like, is it breath work? What do you do? I'm not. It's a good, I actually set a timers for a lot of things in my life to keep <laughs> me on time. <laughs> um, uh, I don't usually for that. It's just a mental thing of like, if I'm feeling that way, it's like, okay, I'm feeling self-pity or bad about something. I'll give myself a very short period of time and then get over it. My techniques usually is, um, is like music, like just putting on some music that shifts me out of it. Um, actually feeling grateful about something. So I have kind of a playlist of just great moments in my life that, um, are my, okay, if I'm feeling that way, I already know the 10 moments I'm just going to start replaying in my brain to get myself in a better state. Um, I also find like moving, like it's kind of amazing how much like your physiology and how you move your body can change how you think. And again, there's been research on this, I think about like, if you sit slumped and frowning, you're not going to feel good if you do that for five minutes. If you like sit upright and you smile, it's again improvement. Like if you just fake a smile, you're going to feel better. Mm -hmm. If you fake laughter, you're going to feel better. So once you learn those things, it's like, okay, if you're feeling bad, just try to listen to a funny podcast or watch like a funny clip and try to get yourself out of it. Yeah. Um, It's funny because when you talk about this stuff, I mean, it's, it's things that I've thought about often myself. It's that I, as I do it more, I'm like, oh, this is so basic. And sometimes I think about, like, oh, are the things I talk about, like, it's it's just basic. But it's, incre- like, incredible to me how many people don't take the time to think about that and yeah. allow wallowing and just yeah, to reaction and um, fear and everything to continue to play out in their life. Um, I think it's, in some ways, I was like, it's very fortunate that, we've gotten to a point where we're like, let's introspect and think about this and think about how I'm presenting myself in the world versus like reacting to everything that it gives me. Um, What does it take for people to, you know, that you've seen to find that space to be okay with looking inside? It's an interesting question. It's a deep, (laughs) it's a deep question. What does it take? Um, um, It's interesting. I mean, it takes... Often, honestly, it takes a moment of crisis or an intervention. So a moment of crisis in your life where you find yourself reevaluating things or being exposed without the crisis, being exposed to someone who just starts to set these things in your brain and starts to get you thinking about them. I don't think like I, for example, I didn't have a moment of crisis, but I started to like be exposed to some of these ideas and then get interested in them and then learn them more. And then as you say, you just, they feel like common sense and then they feel so common sense. And then you realize how rare they are. And then you start to ask like, well, why are they so rare? Um, and I'm going to give you an example because I think it comes back to something you talk a lot about on this podcast, which is fear and what holds people back. Like the 
being in a good mood and humorous, it is so much easier to complain to someone like versus <laughs> be in a good mood and be shouting about how great things yeah. are going. So you got to realize that like society is wired towards more making it acceptable to complain than it is to be in a great mood and spirit. So I kind of had that. Then you become a leader of an organization and you realize that um, – a little bit. If I go into the room, I'm in a great mood and I'm playing music, I'm kind of a weirdo. Like, there's a moment of fear of, like, they're going to think I'm totally bizarre. Um, yeah. But, again, if this is the courage before confidence, if you just go head first in it, and I just did this, like, did some weird things, like, play music loudly at the beginning of the meeting, and no one had done that before, or um, make people stand up and stretch and do toe raises 30 minutes into a meeting because you feel like everyone's getting tired and slumpy. That's actually, to me, been the sign of, like, that's true leadership. That's reading the room room, trying to get everyone in their best possible possible state so that they can deliver the best suggestions to get to the best results. That is what like leadership is trying to get everyone to perform at their at their individual best and then at their collective best. And I don't care what technique you're trying to use to do that, but like leadership is not just being the person who goes along with how you think a leader is supposed to act. It's about learning and adapting on the fly. Um, um, and for me, I think I went through a period where I had all these thoughts about what it meant to be professional and how you're supposed to act in the working world. And then when you start to get into this stuff, it's like, well, that stuff goes out the window. Like mm -hmm. you just, your goal is to get the results. How are you going to get this group to get to the results? Mm -hmm. Which by the way, all ties back to learning that kind of yeah. in crew in my yeah. like early days of a coxswain. Yeah. I'm like, well, I actually kind of learned that then, although I went into the working world, yeah. kind of forgot it. And then it was, you know, reborn. Yeah. 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 And on that topic of leadership it's like um one of the things that you mentioned was like this this model of leadership um which is still very much rooted in masculine i mean masculine yeah. types of masculine traits within leadership so how has that influenced you and how do you you know how did you create your own model of leadership yeah i think um uh you know what I, what i do think is i think once you start to embrace so I do believe, like, there are differences between men and women. There are some fundamental differences. And I do think we'll be better as a society if we talk about those things openly um, and discuss both both pros and cons of both sides. Um, but as a woman, I think the key is not trying to, uh, like, become like a man to be a leader because you're working in a masculine world. Like, that was probably earlier in my career, I'd say, there weren't a ton of female executives. So let me look at how male executives act and behave and use that as your model. And over time, you learn to think, well, like, what are the unique traits of myself that I want to bring into leadership? Um, I, I do think that, like, women are wired to be more empathetic is a good example. Like, it's it's part of being a mother. I think it's a very natural, like, feminine trait. And there's a massive benefit to that because you, you have a natural ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think this is this is maybe a little off topic to your question, but this is interesting when it comes to negotiation because there's all these articles about how women don't negotiate on behalf of themselves and maybe are not good as good negotiators. Once you realize, like, okay, well, actually, women are great at putting themselves in someone else's shoes, which means that they can actually negotiate against themselves, right? They're having an inner dialogue negotiating against themselves for either getting that promotion or why they don't deserve it. Men do not do that. Like, uh, they don't. Um, and so, but once you say, okay, that's my trait, but how do I not let that be a weakness? Let me use that to my strength in a negotiation to try to put myself in someone else's shoes and think about it from them perspective and how are, how are they going to respond to me and how can I respond back? Then it's like, that's a strength of it. Um, so that, coming back to your point about um, leadership, I think uh, 
I don't know, this is a male versus female thing. I'm a big believer in what um, Reed at Netflix you know, spoke about, which is context, not control. And so you're empowering the organization to realize that like, your job as a leader is not command and control down to your organization. It's, you're not in that role to exude power. You're in that role to make everyone perform at their best. Otherwise, you're not scaling an organization. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, the empathy that I had as a woman helped me be able to do that and learn to mm-hmm. get to know people at a deep level, have really open conversations and help them grow to be their best. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's interesting because I, I certainly have grappled with that myself where I've embraced the fact that, okay, empathy is a strength of mine, listening is a strength of mine. But I had noticed, I was like, wait, does this actually make me sometimes a worse negotiator? Because I'm being so empathetic to everyone's views, and I'm like, well, they have their own reality, and, like, you know, maybe that is, like, oh, I get, I see what they mean. And then I forget in that moment what it is that I actually and then you just exactly then you just need to remember <laughs> your outcome right yeah. so that's the like if you remember your outcome and you have to have the belief that like you are worth it and you deserve that outcome it's still okay to be empathetic at understanding other people's perspectives you just can't lose sight of the thing that you want and the value that you think you're worth um but i am i mean this is a growing thing i think i you know you're always yeah. questioning yourself about whether yeah. you're good enough to to do something um yeah yeah cool <laughs> Well, this is an incredible conversation. I think there are a lot of really, really great insights about leadership and the journey and success and um, all parts of understanding yourself. Um, And the way that I end every episode is with the one thing. And the one thing is just the belief that all it takes is one person, one voice to completely change the world and change someone's life. So I'll just ask you about some of your one things. So you ready? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Um, What is... One question that you wish people would ask each other more often. What scares you the most? <laughs> um, what is one book that you would unhesitatingly recommend outside of the one that you mentioned before? Oh, Man's Search for Meaning mm. by Viktor Frankl, yeah. That was his journey. That was him. He was through the Holocaust and then coming out and talking about it. I love that book. I think that's a great book. What was the one lesson that you learned from that book? Um, it... It really that the most important thing in life is realizing that you can control how you respond to any situation. And here was an individual who lived through the Holocaust, um, and he attributes his survival um, by, you know, not the only thing, but his ability to control his response to the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you realize that, like, that is kind of the greatest freedom you could possibly want um, and probably the most important thing to have in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has always um, stuck with me. And I think what he talks about, too, is he talks about, he, he, as it sounds, he talks for about the purpose of life. Um, and Freud would have said that the purpose of life was pursuit of um, pleasure and some other psychologists would say the pursuit of life is the pursuit of power and he's basically the, there's the meaning it comes from finding meaning in what you do and figuring out the meaning like how you were going to derive meaning from your life mm-hmm. um, and he chose to derive meaning and the purpose of his life even though he went through this period of suffering mm-hmm. but he saw positive meaning coming out of it so which was fascinating to me yeah what's one mantra you live by Definitely the confidence, uh, sorry, courage before confidence, courage before confidence. I just keep repeating that. Um, uh, And the other one is just a personal like, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yeah. I think that uh, 
the more you can replace that inner voice in your head with all instead of all the doubts that it will list out and tell you with just like yes you can yes you can yes you can mm-hmm. the better you will do if I'm working out like that's also <laughs> if I feel like I'm about to die in a workout yeah. I'm like just yes you can yes yeah. you can and, and then you start to train yourself that yeah. even when you're in difficult business or life or parenting situations yes you can um, what's one of the toughest things that you found as a mother um, it's interesting. Staying calm enough to understand what my child is going through. Um, so I have a, I have a four year old and a 19 month year old and there's just big emotions at this age. They are just going through a sea of emotions. And so you can see your child reacting to something. You're like, what is going on? I have no idea why you're reacting that way. And just trying to remain calm enough to figure out what's going on, um, there's a lot of moments where you want to, where you get, you know, worried about what other people are thinking about your child. For example, throwing a tamper tantrum, or, you know, when your child, you know, might hit his sister. Like that, of course, is a parent. Like it makes you, in some ways, like furious in that moment. And you can either respond with that emotion, or you can realize, well, uh, you know, I want to, I want to teach my child in this moment, and I don't want to. There's some things I don't want to teach them, like reacting when you're angry and so um, it just having that calmness to choose how you respond which interesting is also the Viktor Frankl thing it's like mm-hmm. you can the power of life is being able to choose how you respond to any situation so anything that comes your way taking that moment to pause and then respond in the way that you want to mm-hmm. versus your lizard brain makes yeah. you want to <laughs> respond yeah um, one thing that you would change about the venture capital landscape um, <laughs> one thing I'd change about that um Interesting. Uh, I don't know. More operators in the roles of investors. Mm. I think that is already changing. Um, I think it was a reason why I also made the leap to move into it. I just think the more people that can be in it that have been there, that know the difference between having a smart idea and executing a smart idea. There is a massive gap between some smart concept and being able to get that run through an organization. And as you scale, that's just more and more a big challenge. Um, and I think the more that there's an understanding about that and ability to coach and help people, um, the I think venture should be more than just money. It should be that kind of advice as the capital that you're also investing in the companies. Mm. And we've we've talked a lot about kind of life advice. And I do, I want to separate it out to say, um, what is one piece of advice you would want to give women and then what's one piece of advice you wouldn't want to give men? And it could be any realm. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> piece of advice I would want to give women. Um, I mean, the biggest piece of advice is uh, to speak up more without fear. I just think universally most women, the thing I've coached most women on is that. It's just they have a fear of speaking up more or being heard. And um, I think that's where you got to reverse the negative. you got to think about all the negative things that are going to happen if you don't speak up. Um, the biggest piece of advice I have for um, men. Um, uh, that's interesting. I guess I'm, I, it's interesting because I go almost to, like, relationships. Um, yeah. it's, it's both, like, I think that they need to better understand how – women think and work. I generally think that in the business world, more women have focused on understanding how men think and work because they're trying to adapt to that ecosystem, at least the fields that I have been in um, with tech and so on. And I think more men can should try to understand the benefits of women um, across the whole gamut. Uh, one very simple example, I think there's a lot of 
um, negative sentiment, for example, of like, okay, a woman who's had kids, like how can she balance it all? Um, there's a hidden undertone of like it's kind of impossible to balance it all. And I think if you actually understood, I, I feel like I have become a better manager and leader and so on from having kids because of everything it teaches you. Um, and so it should, I'd almost should be flipped. Like if you understood what that was like better, you'd realize that like women actually who have become mothers and are doing the two can actually be the best performers that you have. Um, so I think more understanding about the the positives that a woman brings. Awesome. And last thing to make this podcast as actionable as possible, um, for our listeners, what is one micro action, one challenge that you would issue that they could do today? Um, Go think about five things that you're grateful for. And have that playlist ready at your hand anytime. Anytime that you're feeling fearful or um, anytime that you're sad or unhappy, just go do that. Because I think having that gratitude list um, is something I go back to all the time. Uh, and once you have it in your head, you're ready to just push play on that playlist again and again mm-hmm. as you need it. Cool. Well, I'm grateful for this conversation today. Me too. Thank you so much um, for all of your insights. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.